0: Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Church Online. My name is Worth. If you are new, welcome and thank you for joining us. If not, welcome back. We are a church that meets together in large gatherings and in house churches called Kinfold groups that meet throughout West Seattle. You can check those out uh, and the upcoming schedule on the front page of our website. Kinfold groups meet each Sunday, like today, to watch the weekly message uh, on YouTube or on our website and to fellowship, pray, take communion together. So click through to our Kim Groups page to get in touch with the host of a group and get more details. Uh, We're gathering in homes today and on October 17th. We'll be back at our church campus at 4400 42nd Avenue Southwest for our whole church worship gathering on October 24th. After that, we'll be back in homes at our Kim Groups until the next worship gathering later in November. Next up, we launched our middle school youth group and family nights last week. And our next one is scheduled for Wednesday, October 20th. This takes place every other week this fall and into December on Wednesday nights from 6 until 7.15 p.m. You can show up at 6 p.m. with your whole family and grab dinner here. Uh, Really easy. It's free. Middle school youth group will break off uh, at around 6.20 and head over to their own space in the social hall for uh, fun activities and a time of discipleship. Adults, meanwhile, can hang out as long as they like for a time of fellowship. Uh, in our gym. And in the future, we're going to have some short how-to courses on building a culture of following Jesus at home with your family that we're sure you will be interested in. So you can let us know in advance that you're coming by RSVPing on our website or through our app, and we hope to see you there. And last but not least, if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe as well as hit the like icon below. This will really help out the channel. So what we've been doing uh, uh, throughout this series in Galatians is we began with a conversation on the audience of this letter that Paul wrote, which are the audience is the Theosebes, the God fearers. And that's important to understand because that influences why this is a conversation at all for Paul and why this dialogue even exists. And the next week we talked about uh, where Paul Uh, got his gospel like where he actually got the message and he told us that he got it from God not from any men which is great but he knows people are going to want more evidence than that so he goes to the church in Jerusalem and he talks to the leaders there Peter James and John and they basically notarize his message they give him their, their stamp of approval if you will they tell me that I've been preaching what Jesus had been up to all along and then we talked about how Paul defines his gospel this gospel that he got from Jesus which is that we have access to God through the promise that God gives. We don't get access to God through obeying the law, particularly the part of the law known as the works of the law, which are the parts about making you uh, Jewish. And so as we get into the text today, we're going to talk about the relationship between the Jew and the Gentile as they interact in God's kingdom. So we're going to engage with the text today. And as we dive into that, as we've done in these past few weeks, I hope you'll receive a a kind of some new lenses to understand um, the image, the metaphor, the metaphor that Paul is using here. So it starts like this, you know, he says, why, why then the law? That's how Paul starts this section. He starts it with a question. And we talked about this last week, how access to God's kingdom and access to him has never been about the law and it will never be about the law. But we raise the question, why is the law even there in the first place then? And if you uh, read the text, Paul asks if the law is contrary to the promises of God. And we talked last week about how Paul says the law and the promise, they're not the same thing. They're two different things. But over time, uh, certain groups of Jews began to view them as intertwined, intermeshed, and they became the same thing in their way of thinking about it. But Paul makes it really clear that they can't be the same thing because the promise God gave to Abraham came first and the law was delivered much later. So Paul's question here is that even if the promise and the law are not the same thing, does that mean that they are polar opposites? And his answer is no. So let's start in verse 21 of chapter 3. And I want to take note of a few of some words or two that have kind of lost their meaning in the English. Let's start in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free there is no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus and if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise So the first word I want us to take a look at that you heard me emphasize while reading the text is the word guardian The word guardian in the Greek is the word pedagogue pedagogues you know this is uh, this is a really obscure word in our language that we we use to mean teacher or instructor but in Paul's culture a pedagogue was not a teacher let's explain it this way let's say that you are a young child and for some reason you have come into your inheritance maybe you were orphaned or something like that or maybe you had a really generous parent that gave you your inheritance Uh, before they passed away. So let's say for example that you're maybe 10 or 12 years old and you come into your inheritance and you're not prepared to competently deal with the intricacies and legalities of that. And, And this is normal even in our day. For example, it's common practice for parents to put into their will that their children will receive their inheritance at age 25, not earlier. And that's because many parents understand that even at the age of 18, their kids may or may not be ready to deal at every level with the responsibility of receiving an inheritance. But let's say you're living in Paul's time in first century Roman society and you receive your inheritance. Maybe you're 10, 11, 12 years old. And back then, you would hire a pedagogue then to be your guardian. Basically, this is like, imagine this is like like, uh, Bruce Wayne, how he had Alfred. Uh, the butler. The role of a pedagogue was to get that child to the point where they were ready to receive the inheritance fully. So even though they are already heirs way back here when they're a child, they are far too young uh, young to understand it and take full responsibility to receive that inheritance and do all the appropriate things they're supposed to do. They have to be taken from point A to point B by the pedagogue. Paul's point is that the law served as this pedagogue. In other words. God declared through a promise to Abraham way back here that he was going to partner with Abraham and his descendants in a particular work. And that work was putting the world back together because God's mission from day one has always been basically, he's like, I love creation and I want to put it back together. And I'm looking for a partner to help me do that. And you are it. And I'm going to do this through you. That was their promised inheritance. However, they were too young. And too mature, not, not in like a derogatory way, but in the sense that this God was so radical and outside the bounds of their understanding and, the, and, the, and what he was calling to them to was so big, they needed a pedagogue, a guardian to, to get them to the place over here where they could fully receive their inheritance. And it's at that point, that's when the Messiah arrives, that they will fully realize their full inheritance. And so the people of God, they grow up and mature and along the way, they make mistakes just like you and I do, just like we do. And finally, the Messiah, Jesus, arrives and opens their eyes to show them what God has always been up to. We're finally grown up enough to see and understand what God is doing in the world. And the pedagogue, the law that got us from point A to point B, it was never about the pedagogue. It was about the promise. So in verse 27, Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither there's, ne- there's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So this part that, that continues on into chapter four, this is about us being heirs because we are baptized in Christ. And I wanna illustrate this through, kinda of like it. Well, make an illustration for you that I hope will help you understand what Paul is saying. How many of you have seen uh, parents with a three or four year old kid and they wanna negotiate with their kid? They wanna give their, that, that young child freedom to choose and teach them how to make good choices. But maybe like, maybe like me, you tried kind of like negotiation tactics with your kids when they were that young. Maybe they were like five and under. And the question I have for you is this, did it work? No, your four year old doesn't have the capacity to make rational decisions all the time. Not even some of the time, if we're being honest. And we can see the results of kids who don't have firmly established boundaries in their life. They don't function well. And where I'm going with that is this. Imagine this scenario. You've set your stove on to boil some hot water, and you look over and you see your four-year-old about to put their hand up on the stove because for whatever reason they're reaching up there. You're gonna try to reason with him or her about making wise choices at this point? No, you're gonna yell at them or you're gonna, to to stop, or you're gonna grab them really quickly to stop them from touching a 400 degree burner. There's no negotiation there. You just tell them what to do. Now, or if you were to witness me yelling at my son or daughter to not touch the stove so that we don't have to go to the emergency room with first degree burns. If you were to witness that, you might say, wow, he's an angry dad, or wow, he only only parents with the do's and don'ts or the no's. he, he, he's all about the rules. Boy, I'm glad I don't have a parent like that. Boy, I'm glad my parents weren't like that. But the point is that this is how we talk about the God of the Old Testament. He's a mad God in the Old Testament, and he's a loving God in the New Testament. We kind of think of the Old Testament version of God. He's like hangry, and then sometime between the Testaments, he got to go to McDonald's, and now he's happy in the New Testament. When your kids are little, You don't negotiate with them about certain things. You don't try to reason with them about when they eat or what they eat or brushing their teeth or going to bed or taking a bath or, you know, a lot of things like that. You just make them do these things. But as they grow, our parenting evolves to match their maturity. And one day, you'll be able to have a conversation with them about the underlying principles for why you have made them do all these things and learn all this stuff. And form some good habits hopefully for example i wasn't yelling at you when you were young and you almost burned your hand on the stove because i was angry or because i was mad at you or because i hate you or something i yelled at you to keep you from harm because i love you and i want you to grow up without serious injuries the goal of my rules at that time and all the things i've made you do. It's so that you can grow up and experience all of the things that life has to offer you, all the fullness of life that is to come. So Paul is using this as an example about the nature of what the law was all about, a pedagogue. In our own developmental nature, there's a process that is happening where we are growing and maturing in our understanding. And when we do that, we come up against the boundaries of what is good for us and what is not good for us. And human beings will find the boundaries. We will find them. And if they are not given to us clearly, guess what we still do? We will go find them. And if it's not firmly reinforced, we'll go past the kind of like the gray area, the kind of the soft boundaries, and we'll go find where the real hard boundaries are. So Paul is just reminding them of these types of realities. The law was kind of necessary to help you learn where the boundaries are. But he takes it further and he says that in the fullness of time, those rules give way to a deeper understanding of what was at stake all along. So let's read the next part with everything we just went through as our lenses. Chapter 4, he says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, because Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, father, daddy. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Don't you just love that part of the passage? Because God is saying that he sees no difference between his son, Jesus, and the rest of us who are adopted in. And this is something I've heard my friends who've adopted say about their adopted sons and daughters. They see no difference between their biological kids and the kids that they've adopted. Or if they've used surrogacy. There is no difference. They're my kids. And it's so beautiful. And Paul makes a big deal here about it because this is significant. If you're a parent who has adopted, you know that your kids are all your heirs. They have all the rights and privileges of being your kids. This is what Paul is saying to these Galatian Gentiles and to us. What he's saying is, look, you're in. And because you're in, through faith in Christ, because of a promise that was made way back, made 430 years before the law, you get all the rights and privileges of a child in the family based not on rules, but on God's love. And that last part is super important. You don't inherit all this because of a law or based on following the rules. You are an heir And you get the inheritance because of a promise that's rooted and anchored deeply in love. It is based on God's heart and a longing he has to redeem the entire world because he loves it. And because of that, you're in. This is what is at stake here in this argument for Paul. He's saying, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, we have access to the same Father. And the crux of Paul's argument is about which covenant applies here And there are some mechanics for how God's covenants have worked between him and his people. I want to illustrate this for you. We talked about this in our Genesis series, but the first covenant that we work with is the covenant with Noah. And what's clear when God makes that covenant is that he's making that covenant with all creation. And he says, here's the things that I want you to do on your end, and I'm making this covenant with all creation. And the next covenant is the one he makes with Abraham. And this covenant is between you know, him and Abraham, party A and party B, and then Abraham's descendants. And this is the covenant Paul's been talking about in Galatians. He says, this is the covenant of promise, where God says, I love all of creation, and I'm putting it all back together, and you, are dis- you and your descendants, Abraham, you're going to help me. Well, then Abraham has descendants. He has Isaac, and he has Ishmael. We're going to talk a little bit about that next week. And Isaac then has Jacob and Esau, and they are still under this Abrahamic covenant. Even Ishmael is then Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And after their rescue and the exodus from Egypt, they enter a new covenant called the Sinai covenant at Mount Sinai. And this is the covenant that Paul refers to as the pedagogue. And the question hits us when this happens. We get to these God-fearing Gentiles. These God-fearing Gentiles aren't acting like pagan sinners. They want to worship our God, the God of Israel. What are we supposed to do with that? And a whole group of Jews say, well, we do this. We're going to put them into the Sinai covenant. But that doesn't make any sense. Were Was this group, Were they were they there at Mount Sinai? W- were they a part of the parties that entered into that covenant? No. The only covenant that they're a part of is the Noahic covenant, the one made to Noah. In fact, when the early church finished their discussion about this in Acts 15, called the Jerusalem Council, you can go read that on your own, they say that the Gentiles don't have to follow the Sinai covenant. And the only three rules they give them are from the Noahic covenant. No idolatry, don't eat meat that's been strangled, and no sexual immorality. In other words, they did the math in Acts 15, and they told, they hold the Gentiles... They hold them to the covenant that they were present for, the Noahic covenant. But Paul says something completely different here. He says that God's story was never, ever about that Sinai covenant, really. Paul says that God's story is actually about the promise given in the Abrahamic covenant. So like we talked about last week, if you believe in the promise, then you enter into this part of the story, the Abrahamic covenant. And if that's true, then the story actually looks like this. You are now adopted into the family of God. And if you'll trust that God is for the world and he's for creation and that he's putting it all back together, then you get to partner with him. He says, you can partner with me. So the topic from Today's part of this letter to the Galatians is about this blue covenant at the bottom, the Sinai covenant that Paul calls a pedagogue. Paul says the story is about that part. It's about what God's up to in the red part to reach the green part. So Paul's explaining that this last covenant was a guide, a pedagogue, kind of an Alfred to your Bruce Wayne to help them mature until Jesus entered the world. And when that happened we discover a whole new way to see clearly what God has always been up to. And God has always been in the business of choosing partners to help him show the world what he is like. God isn't like all the other gods. The other gods are angry and they need to be appeased. And this God is not like that. You don't have to make God happy by keeping the rules of the law, like eating kosher, etc., etc., But because we are heirs to the promise, we live uniquely and specifically in specific ways because we are partnered in his enterprises. We do things like be extremely generous because it's about putting the principles of our God on display to the world because of the love we have from him. So part of what Paul is saying is that the law is a piece of who God is based on who the truth of God, who God is. Like in other words, we've talked about it before, get away from that hot stove right now. God is a guardian. And the principle underneath that is that God loves you and he wants you to be safe. But the other part of what Paul is saying is that this is the gospel of grace and freedom in and through Jesus. So our job then is it's not to take our freedom and do whatever we want to with it. Rather, within this new covenant and through Jesus, what he accomplished on the cross, we have been given the freedom within that to live out the principles that governed the law from the beginning. So we see Paul combining here the principles of truth from the law and grace from the covenant in Jesus. It's not about the rules. It's about living out the grace that God's given you freely. Well, I want to leave you with some challenges and some implications. The first of which is God's story is all about the promise. The law is simply a tool that helps us get to the inheritance of the promise. And the second implication is a bit more nuanced, but it's this. As Gentiles, you are invited into this story after faith has already been realized. In other words, you don't come in as baby infants. You you come in as adopted children, ready to receive as an heir the promise of Christ. You're already grown up enough to be responsible. So you're an heir ready to receive the inheritance. And that's a great big deal. Why would you ever want to go back if you're already here and old enough and mature enough, why would you ever want to go back and ask a babysitter to take care of you? And that's exactly what the third implication is. You don't need a guardian or, an, or a nanny. You don't need a pedagogue. You don't need a law because you're here now as a fully realized heir to the inheritance of the promises of Jesus. You get what God is up to. He's up to truth and grace and freedom and love and peace. And we don't want to forget At the same time, that God doesn't want us running around playing with dangerous things in the kitchen like sharp knives and hot stoves, right? We always need to be reminded of the law as a tool for guidance. But remember that the law was there to teach us the principles that Jesus lived out and that through faith, he asks us to live out, not as rules, but as proper boundaries for freedom. He asks us to walk his path in grace and freedom. But don't forget those principles that Jesus lived out are from the law. And they point to a God who loves us and is for us. And he loves you. And he wants a relationship with you more than you could ever imagine. Well, that leaves us, before we wrap it up, with just two final challenges. And we'll leave it here. Where are you living by the promise? And where have you tried to replace that promise with religiosity? For West Seattle Christian Church Online, I'm Worth Wheeler. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus and produce good fruit, my friends.